You know, almost 10 years ago, we moved from the metropolis of Phoenix here to beautiful Red Bluff, California. And, and one of the no, more noticeable differences for us was the landscape. Because when we drive around here now, we see all kinds of livestock on people's property. And that's not something you see much in Phoenix. You know, you just, you just don't see that that much. And, and I don't know a whole lot about cattle or hogs or horses. That, that's just not at all in my wheelhouse. I'm a city slicker, I guess, by nature. But believe it or not, I do know a few things about chickens. If you, I, I know that if you went to 10 different homes in Red Bluff who raised their own chickens and you randomly selected one from each of those households and then you took those 10 unfamiliar chickens and you put them together in a pen and you threw out some feed, you would witness an amazing phenomenon. The formation of the dominance hierarchy or to put it in everyday language, the establishment of the pecking order. I'm sure you have all heard about and maybe have even experienced in your own personal life the pecking order, right? We all have. Instinctively, the hens determine among themselves um, who the number one hen will be, and they do this through physical skirmishes. It's what the experts, they have, actually have a name for this. It's called linear hierarchical fashion. That's it's, it's the process they use, which basically means that hen number one can peck and intimidate hen number two without experiencing any retribution whatsoever because hen number two just stands there and take it. And then hen number two turns around and starts pecking away at hen number three, who will not seek revenge on either one or two, but then hen number three turns around and lets hen number four have it. And this goes on down the line with each hen pecking their way uh, until they get to the point of poor little hen number 10. And sadly, number 10 gets machine gunned by hen number nine, and that hen doesn't have anyone else to, to pack. And you think about it, it must be a terribly frustrating thing to be hen number 10. And you may say, well, that's exactly how I feel at work or at home or, or at school sometimes. I, I get pecked at and I don't have anybody beneath me to peck at. And you're right. Because as I said earlier, every one of us have experienced the pecking order on our own life. We are very familiar with the process of figuring out where people fall in the pecking order, don't we? Here's an example. If you were to go to a social gathering in this community with a group of people and you carried on conversations throughout the night, chances are on your way home, you start evaluating and thinking about the conversations and the experiences that you had. And you come to realize that some of the people that you met and spoke to were more influential than you were. They, they had higher levels of, of, of education than you did. They were wealthier than you. They, they had higher paying professions than you. And some were just more outgoing than you are. They seem more comfortable in this social environment than you felt. And perhaps even some of them intimidated you. But at the same time, you also learned that there were people at that gathering who were just the opposite. You realized that you had greater levels of influence than they did. You possessed a higher level of education or simply greater levels of common sense in some areas. You were wealthier than some of the people you talked to and your career or your profession provided you with greater levels of income than some others. You realized that, that, that you were a lot more outgoing and comfortable in that environment than others that you talked with were. And perhaps, perhaps you might have even intimidated a few people in that gathering as well. You see, we, we become skilled at, at placing those who we meet in particular positions on the pecking order. And we often do this by titles and profession and status and wealth and position. It all helps us to go to peg people where they need to be in the pecking order in relationship to ourselves. I was once invited to play at a fundraising golf tournament with a bunch of high rollers. The only reason I went is because the guy who invited me paid the substantial entry fee to be a part of this golf tournament. After the round of golf was done, these men all gathered together at a table. I was at the table and immediately the conversation started. And most of the conversations were about who worked where, 
How much did their company generate in sales? How many employees and so on? And I'm sitting there just kind of nodding my head. I mean, I'm a pastor, you know? And, 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 and I knew I was in trouble when one of the guys asked for them to pass the butter and everybody reached and it looked like a Rolex commercial. They all got these $10,000 gold Rolex watches on. So these guys are checking each, each, each one out and they're trying to figure out who at that table is hen number one, who is number two and so on. And it was easily discerned who hen number 10 was and it was me. <laughs> but I have to say that it's an, it was interesting to watch this whole thing play out in front of me. And what I find funny is this same type of thing doesn't just happen with business people. It happens in government, it happens in education, it happens in law enforcement, you name it, it happens. But what's really interesting to me is that yes, it even happens in ministry. Am I right, Chris? If, if, if you go to a minister's conference, pastors sit around in little groups and they, they engage in, in small talk. And the small talk is really, as a senior pastor, I will tell you, the small talk is really about discovering three things. How many people attend your church? How big is your budget? And how large of a staff do you have? And once that comes out in the conversations, then the ministers can establish their own pecking order, and they do. Human beings are always trying to figure out where everybody else fits in when compared to you on the pecking order. It's really an, an amazing phenomenon. And you may say, but Pastor David, it's really just, a, it's harmless. It's, a, it's an innocent little thing and an innocent little game we play. What is, so what does it matter? Well, thank you for asking. Because as we continue in our series this morning, call it, called Live Strong from the book of Philippians, Paul has something to say about this. At the heart of Paul's concern is something that happens after we establish the pecking order. Paul would say this is more than just an innocent little mind game that's going on here. Why? Because almost subconsciously, what happens is when we finally peg everyone in our world as to where they fit in to the pecking order, then we carefully place ourselves in our appropriate position. But what happens is we naturally tend to treat the people above us with respect and admiration and cordiality and honor, while we tend to treat those who fall below us on the pecking order with insensitivity and callousness and sometimes tactlessness. And right about here is where Paul is saying, this is where things get really ugly and this is where things get really sinful. Like chickens, we tend not to peck on those above us, but we go after the ones below us. I mean, who among us has a problem treating a VIP or a celebrity with grace and honor and respect? It almost comes naturally to us, doesn't it? When the president of a company asks you for a favor, you're probably going to, he's gonna probably get it from you. When a VIP or an owner or a superstar or anyone up the pecking order snaps his or her finger, we tend to kind of jump and treat them preferentially. But let someone below us on the pecking order, professionally, socially, financially, come around, we yawn and we say, oh, it's you again. It's only you. There's very little honor and there's very little interest that's shown. There's no preferential treatment that's displayed. Sadly, it is just the way we tend to operate in this world. But to put it into perspective, God would clearly say to us today that I hate this system because the world system runs completely opposite to the way that God intended it to operate. During Jesus' ministry, he seized every opportunity that he could to turn this human pecking order system upside down. He'd say to the respected religious leaders, you will be great in God's sight when you demonstrate servanthood to the least of these around you. When you serve, you are to respect and honor the lowest person on the pecking order scale. Jesus loved to stir things up by asking questions like, have you been to any prisons lately and visiting? When was the last time you visited a forgotten person? When was the last time you invited any orphans or widows over to your place or visited a sick 
or a dying person? When was the last time you hung out with any really hardcore pagans that, that you, you know trying to build bridges that lead them to the truth? I use that word pagans. I'm talking about somebody who has not seen the light of Jesus Christ and do not see that there's anything wrong with their ongoing sinful behavior. That's what I mean when I say pagans. How many times have you taken somebody who doesn't know Jesus, put them under your arm, and tried to show them the truth? When was the last time you fed any hungry people or clothed any naked people, as the Bible says, or comforted any grieving people? Then Jesus would say, if you simply show honor and preference to the VIPs of the world, then you're really no different than anybody else. Why should you claim to be God-fearing people when you're just following your instincts? I mean, animals do that same thing. It's how the system works. But then Jesus would say, when you show honor and respect to those less fortunate than you, when you focus on hen number eight or number nine or number 10, then is when you prove to heaven and earth that you are followers of mine. James, the brother of Jesus, who was a great leader in the first century church, proved that he learned well from his brother, Jesus the master. He writes in James 2, 1 through 9, and this isn't our scripture reference, I'm still in my introduction, bear with me. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promises to those who love him? Verse six, but you honor the poor, you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you? and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. Now, I realize, as I said, this is an excessively long introduction, probably the longest introduction I've ever done, but I believe it is very important for me to set the tone for today's scripture reference, which is in Philippians chapter two. In fact, you can go ahead and turn there now if you'd like to. If you don't have your Bible, it will be up on the screen behind me. But in today's scripture, the apostle Paul writes something that is probably one of the single most counter-cultural revolutionary phrases in all of the New Testament. And it's found in Philippians chapter two, verse three, and it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us esteem others better than ourselves." That's the scripture reference. I told you we'd pick one out every week that I want you to memorize. This is the scripture I'd like you to memorize today. If we apply these words from the apostle Paul to our personal lives, the implications when you think about it would be, would be staggering. Can you imagine what would happen in the workplace if everybody in the company treated everybody else like a VIP? If accounting would treat the landscaping crew with honor and with respect? If upper management would treat those in data entry with dignity and respect? It would then turn the marketplace upside down. Can you imagine what would happen in government if, if elected officials actually cared about the people that they were governing over? if they could look at their constituency with dignity and honor and respect. Instead of just ruling over the unwashed masses with a degrading attitude that so many in government have towards us. What about marriages? I hate to say this, but it needs to be said. A lot of husbands view themselves as hen number one. And they peck at the wife, hen number two. And the rule of the house is that she'd better not peck back, and so she pecks at the kids, and then the kids peck at the dog. That's kind of how it goes. But can you imagine what would happen if every husband were to say, my wife is a VIP, and I'm going to honor her, and I'm going to respect her, and I'm going to cherish her and her opinions. I'm going to cheer her on, and I'm going to build her up. Can you imagine if the wife said the same thing about her husband and the children to the parents 
And the parents said that about their aging parents. Can you imagine what families might look like? Can you imagine what the church would look like if those who attended looked at every person in this place as a VIP, regardless of their appearance, their cognitive abilities, their socioeconomic status, their gender, their race, or even their handicap. What could happen if they were all looked upon as being important enough to treat preferentially? The Apostle Paul makes clear that in order for this to happen, number one, there can be no more selfish ambition. Those particular words that are used in verse three are sometimes translated as factions or strife. It speaks of a competitive spirit that destroys unity by dividing the church into groups and dividing the church into, into cliques. And this can happen so easily. We divide the long-term members from the newcomers, the men versus the women, the traditional worship crowd versus those who like the contemporary music, political activists among us with the personal evangelists, and the list goes on and on and on. But we must all resist those categorizations because we are one body. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. Yes, we are made up of a wide variety of ages and, and of cultures and of preferences, but we are one body. Number two, Paul says there can be no more vain conceit. The, the phrase translates from a word that means arrogance. Have you ever met a Christian who was once a person who loved the lost and through compassion and through love tried to win others to Jesus? But at some point, and you're not exactly sure when it occurred, they've now become arrogant over the fact that they found truth in Christ Jesus. And now when they look at those who haven't found that same truth, they view them as almost an inferior human being. You know, we talk about our identity in Christ a whole lot within the church, but we must always remember that not everyone who sits in this building has found their identity yet. They are still in process. And instead of allowing that person the time for the Holy Spirit to change their direction, and to refine them into what God desires them to be, some call out that person by the sin that they're still trapped in, completely forgetting that they once too were trapped in sin. But then what they do is they, 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 they excuse that kind of poor behavior by believing, actually believing that the sin that they were once trapped in is somehow less ugly or more acceptable, that's a joke. God views sin the same, sin is sin. And every bit of it breaks the heart of God and every bit of it divides us, separates us from the Lord. Here's the truth, one person's gluttony or pride or gossiping tongue is just as ugly to the Lord as another person's sexual sin or their criminal background. That is a reality, that is the truth, folks. So we gotta be careful that in our love and our passion for God combined with our disdain, uh, our disdain towards sin doesn't come across as arrogant because 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we must always direct our disdain for sin toward the sin and not the person who is trapped in the sin. In other words, we hate the sin, but we must always love the sinner. Many believers confuse the two, and therefore they hold a vain kind of conceit when comparing where they are spiritually to those who are lost. It's, it's a kind of arrogance that, that says, what I possess in Christ Jesus, I know to be so right and so true and, and that's true. And because it's right, you, my friend, are sadly wrong. If we are not careful, we can translate our Christianity into some kind of a conceited, vain, and arrogant position. 
but we must always resist that from happening because the truth of the gospel has never been or ever will be about conceited vanity or, or, or arrogance. It's, it has nothing to do with it. It's always been about grace. It's always been about mercy. It's always been about forgiveness. And the fact that the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us is the same. Another thing Paul makes clear, there must also be true humility. The King James uses the, the phrase lowliness of mind. This is a word that in the classical, classical Greek means to grovel before someone else. So Paul takes this negative word and he elevates it into a Christian virtue. In this context, it means to have a proper estimation of yourself so that there is no need for self-promotion. Ephesians 4.2 tell, 4, tells us, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, it says we are to bear with one another in love. Someone once asked St. Augustine, what, was the first, what is the first mark of true religion? And he replied, humility. And the second mark, humility. And the third mark, humility. True religion always begins with humility because unless you humble yourself before the Lord, you can never be saved. The proud go to hell simply because they will not bend their knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Only the humble will ever be saved. Finally, Paul makes clear there must be a new estimation of each other. When Paul tells us to esteem others as better than ourselves, he uses a word that means far surpassing. Again, it's about humility. So how does one develop humility? C.S. Lewis says that the first step is to admit that you're a proud person. It's not an easy thing to do. Why? Because there's something deep inside of us that, that recoils at the thought of admitting that we are filled with pride. But if pride is what caused Lucifer to fall from the heavenly realm, should it surprise us that pride still lurks in the human heart? Are you a proud person? The answer is yes, you are. Am I a proud person? The answer is yes, I am. We are all prideful people in many different ways. We just can't admit it. Why can't we admit it and then move on from there? When you do, that is the seeds for spiritual growth. When we understand what is wrong with us. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. When we live in humility, we start to think less about our gifts and our abilities and more about our imperfections. And that's what allows God to grow us up in those areas. I met with a woman from our church in my office and I was blown away literally by her transparency. She had such a secure grasp on her own life as well as her, her weaknesses. And she admitted with great clarity the issues in her life that hold her back. But she was also humbly praying to God towards improvement in all of those areas. And I was so refreshed by, by her honest assessment of herself. Because most of us, honestly, we use a great deal of energy trying to convince other people that we're, we're close to perfect. And we know that's not true. See, I believe with, with all my heart, in order for us to have a new estimation of other people, we gotta start with an honest estimation of ourselves. When we do this, it changes our attitude. And when our attitude changes, it, it, it changes our approach to other people. We've all gotta realize that, that our attitudes and the way that we treat other people really does mark them. It takes people's breath away when somebody who appears to be higher on the pecking order shows preferential treatment to somebody who is lower down that scale. And if you remember anything that I'm gonna tell you this morning, let it be this, the love of Christ is most clearly reflected through you. When you go out of your way to demonstrate to those less fortunate, those less privileged or less powerful than you, that they matter to God and that they matter to you, you're acting at that moment uniquely Christian. 
Let me tell you what I believe Paul's trying to drive at in today's uh, scripture and passage. He's identifying what it takes to really build and to maintain something essential, true community within the church. Paul loves this church that he's writing to in Philippi, and he's paid a huge price for spreading the gospel and starting that church among many others. But as an overseer, he has been tracking their growth, and Paul sees that there are some relational problems that are going on within this church. So let's read the entire text, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Paul says, if you would do this, a lot of dissension, a lot of misunderstanding would fall to the wayside and you'd have a really good thing going on in the church of Philippi and in the church of Red Bluff or wherever in the world a church may be. But the key to all of this, Paul says, is if you really want to start a relational revolution, then you've got to overturn the pecking order system. You must treat everybody that you meet as your family when they come into this church. You need to treat everyone in your world as a VIP and offer them the same treatment as you would someone else. Let's be practical about this for just a moment. Who could you surprise tomorrow with preferential treatment? Think of those people in your life who you find it easy to just walk by or pass up or just kind of view them as, as, as a number. You know, the people that you tend to kind of look at as, as a wallflower, you often, don't, you often walk by them and maybe there have even been times you've been short with them. They are people that you have somehow wielded power over and they're the people that, that you peck at. Who could you surprise tomorrow by showing them preferential treatment? And here's the truth. If you did this, it would clearly demonstrate Christ's love to them. And there, in the workplace, there would be no other, no more wondering if you were a Christian or not, because very few people ever talk about doing this, let alone do it. But we're not most people. We are children of God. We are Christians. And we don't emulate the world's ways. We live by the precepts found in God's word. These kinds of actions literally set you apart as a man or woman of God around those who you deal with. One time Jesus was trying to teach his disciples that there was no such thing as a no count. The disciples were literally screening people who were trying to make their way to Jesus. So when a beggar would come, they'd say, don't bother the master. And Jesus would look at them and say, beggars matter to me, let that man through. And then a blind man would come. And he'd be calling out to Jesus and the disciples would try to silence him and say, hey, he's busy. He's got a speaking engagement. And Jesus would say, no, guys, those blind men matters to me. And then the lame and the deaf and the poor and the unreligious people would cry out to him. And, and Jesus would always say, let them through. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to save them. They matter to me. And one day it all came to a head. Jesus was exhausted after a long day of teaching when a bunch of kids were playing in the area and they started cutting through to get to Jesus and the disciples drew the line right there and they said, no kids. And of course, that's when Jesus made that, that famous statement, suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not. Because to Jesus, those kids mattered. If we could all grasp just how much we could mark people's lives and please God and start a relational revolution if we would treat people who have some form of brokenness in their lives preferentially, what kind of mark could we actually leave on them? And as we look ahead at not just the future of this church, but the future of Christianity as a whole, we really do need to take Paul's words to heart. This message today is very timely indeed because our church is growing. It seems like we've gotten over the COVID hump and now more people are coming in here week after week. There are many new faces and, and there are people who are just looking for a church home. 
They're looking for a place to be accepted. They're looking for a church family that they can get connected to and that they can love. Did you know the greatest need that we have as human beings is being accepted? And this very pecking order system that we're talking about is the barrier to true acceptance. See, people have gotten so acclimated to the pecking order that they assume it goes on everywhere, even in the church. And in some cases, they're right. So as we grow, the Apostle Paul's words are the words that we must learn to live by. And I wanna just say something for the record. You are some of the most loving people I have ever met at High Point Assembly. Most of you would give the shirt off of your back to someone if they needed it. You have a heart for the lost. You enjoy seeing people's lives transformed by the power of God. You love the Lord. You care about people. You care about your church and your community. And I'm thankful for that, I really am. But sometimes when we're having a bad day, sometimes when we get away from this place and we're in the middle of difficulties that are going on around us, sometimes we can lose sight of our mission. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I wanna share a few with you, and these aren't excuses. I believe they are legitimate reasons why we don't reach out often. Many of us have the fear of crowding people's space. It's a legitimate fear. There are people who want you to get deeply involved in their life, and there are others who want to keep you at a distance. And so I think the prevailing attitude becomes among us, if someone needs something from me, then I, I'm sure that they will ask, but they often don't. Another reason is the fear of rejection. You ever have a time when you felt like you should approach someone and encourage them and ask them if everything's all right, but you decided against it because fear welled up inside of you and you're thinking to yourself, if I'm wrong, they might look me in the eye and they might say, no, everything's okay, you weirdo. What are you talking about? You ever have that feeling? Another reason is the fear of appearing nosy. We, we really want to reach out because we can see that somebody is experiencing some kind of difficulty, but you fear that you're getting involved with things that maybe just aren't your business at all. Another reason is the fear of a long-term effort. We start thinking of the effort and the personal involvement that it might take to really get to know or to truly help somebody, and we worry that we might be getting into something that may very, be very costly in the long run, both in time and even in personal resources. Another reason is the fear of not relating. We worry that we could never relate to that person or they may never relate to us. I mean, we all come from different backgrounds. We hang out with completely different crowds, so we worry about those kinds of things. You see, the whole message today is about how we relate with others. And if we're all honest with ourselves, I think we would have to admit that sometimes we don't do well at relating. And it's not always because of what that scripture means about, about selfish ambition or conceit. Sometimes we derail the acceptance process on our own account based upon our own personal insecurities. There are a multitude of reasons why we don't reach out to strangers and reach out to those who are hurting and those who really could use some encouragement. And it's not because we are selfish. It's not because we are conceited. It's because we're just scared or we're uncomfortable or it's simply just awkward for us. And today's message is, is one of those preemptive strikes. I wanna get us all thinking about the acceptance process of, of everybody who walks into this building. And today I wanna ask you as your pastor to give some thought and attention to this and, and most importantly, bathe this whole thing in prayer between you and God. I wanna ask everybody in this place to do a, a personal and an honest evaluation of how you view strangers, how you view people you don't know in general. Do you find yourself interested or disinterested in approaching a new person? Do you find yourself comfortable or uncomfortable? Do you, do you know how to break the ice? Or do you need ways, do you need to learn ways to discover how you can connect with new people and to make them feel accepted? Can you honestly say that you've never looked at yourself as higher on the pecking order 
than somebody else? And does it ever affect the way that you do or you don't connect with strangers? Do you ever find yourself making assessments of people when they walk in here and they sit down next to you, in front of you, or behind you? Are you measuring them up? Are you, are you trying to determine if you're comfortable enough to reach out and say a kind word? What I'm trying to say is that it is vitally important that we create a culture of acceptance and honor towards anyone who comes to these doors who is seeking the truth of Jesus Christ. As your pastor, my desire is that High Point will be perceived within this community as a friendly and an accepting place. I want it to become just natural for every one of us to be ambassadors for this place that we call our church home. I'm officially releasing every one of you this morning and I'm giving you the title of ambassador. I don't care how long or how short you have attended here. I don't care how long it's been since you received salvation. I don't care about any of that. What I do care is that we begin to act like ambassadors, every single one of us. The definition of an ambassador is a diplomat, an official representative, an envoy, or an emissary. In other words, each and every one of you is responsible with the job of representing High Point Assembly and reaching out and making people feel accepted. And it simply begins with a smile, with a handshake, with an introduction, a kind word, a compliment, a simple thank you for being here today. Now, what I'm about to say is radical, but here it goes. Maybe even invite them to come over and sit with you and your family. Here's something even more radical. Maybe sit one week in an entirely new section within our sanctuary. I've had people say to me, this church is growing so much, I don't know anybody here. And I want to say, well, you get off the pew that you've been sitting in for the last 28 and a half years. <laughs> the one that you had that little gold plaque made, this is reserved for sister so-and-so, brother bottoms and sister seat. And get around and, and, and talk with other people. You might get to know some of the faces that you claim you don't know. Listen, folks, we got to mix it up a little bit. We do. Every once in a while, we got to mix it up. I'm officially releasing all of you to act like you would if you saw a new person come in here and I want you to pretend that that person was coming into your house as a dinner guest. Greet them at the door. Thank them for coming. Attend to their needs. That must be our method of operation each and every week, each and every service, each and every event that we put on here. We don't put on events just to say we put on events. We put on events so people will come and feel connected and say, those people at High Point Assembly are really nice people. They were kind to me and my family. They, they, they helped my kids in, they, in summer camp. All the different things we do. They gave us a turkey at Thanksgiving. All of the things we do, they remember those kinds of things. You can never be too friendly. You just can't. Don't ever worry that somebody might think, good Lord, if one more person is friendly to me at that place, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Let me tell you about it. Somebody, nobody ever thinks that way. You know what they think? They think that's got to be the friendliest church that I've ever visited. Bingo. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Listen, I know this hasn't been one of the most dynamic messages I've ever preached. And I know if you feel like you are a person who really goes out of your way and does all of these things I'm talking about, you're probably a little offended right now because you're taking this personally and you don't need to take it personally. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the ones who, as I've been saying this, you go, wow, that kind of stings. You know, he's right. I, I don't do those things. Maybe it's time that I do. Maybe it's time that I take ownership in my church. And maybe it's time that I quit letting the staff and the ushers do all that and just be a human being and, and, and do whatever. There's nothing that you've, this, this, as I said, this may not be the greatest sermon you ever heard, but honestly, there is really nothing that I've shared with you that is really more important to Christ in our community than what I've just shared. There's nothing more essential to the growth of our church 
than what I've shared. We get one chance to make a first impression. And when that impression isn't good, chances are people aren't gonna come back. See, I'm not so interested in having a cute little tagline attached to our logo. High Point Assembly, the friendliest church in town. Or High Point Assembly, the church with a heart. <laughs> what I'm interested in is that our guests who come through these doors and those who are seeking Jesus see and experience that from us. Because words are cheap, but actions are, are what define us. So this morning, I want to officially encourage all of you to eliminate the pecking order mentality in your own life if you found that it is there. There's no place for it. There's no place for it in your family, at work. No place for it, especially in our church. It's all refrain from making judgments about people based upon how they look, how they dress, how they dye their hair, how they act, especially the sin that they're trapped in. Because God loves everyone. He created everyone. His desire is that we will all come to know Jesus through faith and being washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And here's where we all come in. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us esteem others better than ourselves. Let's not only look out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. Those are words that make a lot of sense. And furthermore, they are words that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to live by. Would you all stand to your feet? I'd like to ask Scott and the worship team to come forward. I have to take a drink. It takes my worship team 20 minutes to get up here, so I have to kind of burn some time. I'm joking. I busted their chops this morning. I said, let's get up here quickly. You know I love you guys, right? No? As I prayed about how I might end this service, I was reminded of a statement that I made earlier. And the statement was that the ground is always level at the foot of the cross, meaning there's no status, there is no wealth, there is no position. There is nothing that we have that we can bring that makes someone coming to Jesus any different than anyone else. In God's eyes, we are all the same. We are all people who are in desperate need of Jesus. I was reminded of a song that we sang, that we sing here at the church called At the Cross. Here's some of the words. There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies, where streams of grace flow deep and wide. There's a place where sin and shame are powerless, where my heart has peace with God and forgiveness, where all the love I ever found comes like a flood, comes crashing down. And that place is at the cross. That's the level ground that I've been trying to express to you this morning because we as men, we, we tend to put different categories on people, but God never ever does that. With God, there's two kinds of people, people who know Jesus and people who don't. And his desire is that everyone would come to know Jesus in a personal way. I wanna sing that song this morning as a congregation to remind us of what Jesus delivered us from individually. We were all lost in sin, but now we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And when we wrap our minds around that truth, it makes it very, very hard for any of us to get, categorize someone else. So as we sing this song, you gotta understand that this is the anthem of anyone who has ever said yes to Jesus, the words of this song. But if you've never said yes to Jesus this morning, allow, to, allow the words of this song as we sing it to encourage you. 
Let the words of this song compel you toward making a decision to allow Jesus to have lordship over your life. And when this is done, we're gonna bow our heads so I can pray for everyone in this place. Scott, go ahead. a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace go deep and wide. We're all the like a flood comes flowing down at the cross at the cross I surrender my life I'm in all of you I'm in all of you where you love and red and my sin washed white I owe all to you I owe all to you Jesus Lord there's a place for sin and shame I'm powerless nowhere God and forgiveness. We're all the love I've ever found. Comes like a flood, comes flowing down at the cross, at the cross. I surrender. with me please Father thank you for your word I thank you for the truth in your word I thank you for how your word challenges us straightens us out in our thinking gives us peace in our hearts does so much and when we combine that with your spirit and your forgiveness 
God, you truly give us everything that we need to live a life that glorifies you. Forgive us when we fall short of your expectations. We fall short of the way you would have us to be towards others. Forgive us when we get caught up in the traps of life and we're not thinking about these things. But I thank you that your word jars our memory and brings it back into mind and focus. Lord, I want to pray first of all for those who are here, who are watching online, who may not know you as Lord and Savior. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was the Son of God and came and died on the cross and the, the blood that was shed atones or covers our sin and we, we say that, we profess that, we will be saved. So my prayer is, Lord, during this closing prayer that they would just pray a simple prayer. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the Son of God. Forgive me of my sin. Become my Lord and Savior. I give you lordship over my life today. Fill me with your spirit. Strengthen me, guide and direct me. Just pray a simple prayer like that, Father. You are faithful to save them. Cleanse them, as the word says, of all unrighteousness and make them a new creation. And then I pray that we as a church will come alongside of them and support them and encourage them in their journey and their walk towards you. For the rest of us, Lord, those who already know you, I thank you for this reminder of how we are to treat one another, not just out in the world, but even in the house of God. Pray that we would all take these words seriously, that we would all take this new title of ambassador that has been placed upon us and we will take it seriously. We will employ our gifts and our friendliness and our kindness and our personality and just our time to be ambassadors for you. That no one would ever leave this place feeling unwelcomed, but that they knew that they had found a home where they could be loved and they could love you and they could grow in their relationship with you. So Father, be with us to truly be a New Testament church in every sense of the word. Help us to be the kind of people that draw those who don't know you to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, I pray that those conversations would build people up and not tear them down. I pray that we would shine bright light, like a bright light in this very dark world. That bright light is the love of Christ inside of us. Lord, let it be so bright that people would come and say, what is it that's different about you? And that you will open that door for us to share your goodness with them. In fact, for, Father, as I always pray, I ask that you'd give each one of us a divine appointment this week. Have someone cross our path that is seeking and that we would lead them to the cross where the ground is always level. We go our separate ways, keep us safe from accidents, keep us safe from sicknesses and disease and illness. And as we leave here, let us go in love and express that love to others. I ask it in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.